I want to thank you so much for having me here today. Um, it is an incredible privilege to come back to one's alma mater and to be able to speak. I can't tell you the joy it brings to me, especially Truett Seminary. As uh, my bio noted, I've been to a lot of places since Truett, but Truett has formed me and shaped me into what I am in all of my further theological exploits. So I want to speak to you today as a, as a colleague, as a fellow laborer in the fields, and I hope you'll give me that privilege. Um, you'll have to ask me about the tie later on. It has special significance. Uh, for those of you who knew the former professor Stanley Grins, it will mean something to you. So um, ask me later, my friends. I want to reiterate one verse of the scripture text that was read this morning. It's a scripture text. It's a verse that has struck me my entire ministry life. Verse 18, the apostle says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And that's our message this morning, seeing with the eyes of your heart. But I want to start at a little bit different place. I want to start at a conversation that I had with my daughter. My daughter, Catherine Smith, is 23 years old. She is attending Sam Houston State doing her master's degree in English. And Catherine called me the other day and said, Dad, have you ever heard of Gertrude Stein? I said, you're reading Gertrude Stein? She said, yes. And we talked about that for a while, and all of a sudden it struck me how it will fit in with our message for today. And you'll forgive me, I'm going to do something else too. Having been in Montana, I'm not used to preaching in a jacket. I'm used to preaching in an overcoat, thick, down-filled thing. So I'm going to get rid of this for a moment, if you don't mind. Gertrude Stein wrote a book called The World is Round, and I think it's an ode to playfulness. Those of you who know Gertrude Stein will understand what I'm saying. In her book, her main character is named Rose, and in this passage, she reflects Stein's understanding of language and joy. When I sing, I am in a ring, and a ring is round, and there is no sound, and the way is white, and pepper is bright, and love my dog, love he is away, all right. Oh dear, oh dear is right, especially if you didn't follow that. Then, of course, Stein makes this line in her book as well. A rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. And I'm sure you're thinking, what does this have to do with anything? What this has to do with is this. Stein writes in the 1920s amidst the jazz age, a very disenchanted yet hopeful generation. She joined Ernest Hemingway and Pablo Picasso and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald on the left bank of the Seine River in Paris. This group had become disoriented and disillusioned by World War I, yet they remained hopeful that a new world had dawned. The ravages of war, the failure of the modern world had left them reeling, yet hope remained. Thus their works reflect an abstract painful, futile sometimes, definitely narcissistic and utopian themes. Even music changed in the 1920s. George Gershwin, Aaron Copeland, Cole Porter, Eric Satie, Kurt Weill, and others changed the emphases of the musical world from a classical orchestral kind of thing to 
popular song into jazz, the jazz age. Well, friends, I believe that you and I live in a new jazz age in 2014. Incessant war, terrorism, the continuing failures of the modern age, and the ambiguity of the postmodern cultural sirens, senseless death, cultural warfare over sexuality, the economic crises of capitalism, and an ever-increasing narcissism and hedonism mark our culture today just as it marked Gertrude Stein's culture. The artists of our time create out of a reckless abandon and a rage at the machine. I think it's all encapsulated in one word, twerking. It's the jazz age all over again, isn't it? Why then wonder that the 19th century Christianity that most of us practice in our churches is in severe decline? Friends, if you ever leave the Bible Belt in your ministry, and I grew up in Oklahoma and Texas, the buckle of the Bible Belt. I grew up here. But if you ever leave the Bible Belt in your ministry, you will find that there is no room for 19th century Christian practice. Art and recreation are the new altars upon which Americans worship. They have no time nor room for anachronistic, irrelevant religion. So what is the solution for us, my friends? You and I must find a way for the gospel to speak. We must find a way for the gospel to speak so that the eyes of the heart might be opened once again in our culture. You see, Paul recognizes something that you and I forget. The eyes of the heart are that which enable us to see and to realize, to make real God's grace, love, hope, and power. So what are the eyes of the heart? Theologians today understand the eyes of the heart as, in a real sense, the sanctified imagination. I was so grateful that you mentioned imagination this morning. The imagination made holy in Christ and under the direction and influence of the Holy Spirit as we study scripture, as we worship together, as we fellowship. We tend to view the imagination as the part of our minds that produces simply dreams and fantasy, but it's so much more than that. It is that reality-creating function of our minds. It's what puts all things together in some order and fashion so that we might live and navigate in our worlds. And truly, it's that part of our mental capacity that connects with faith like nothing else can do. Sadly, we don't understand that and have allowed our imaginations just to be run over and corrupted in our world. The barrage of media, sports. Oh my gosh, I watched the West Virginia game. My my world came crashing down after the third quarter. Unfiltered sensuality. All of these things corrupt the imagination, as I would say God had intended it to operate in our lives. Reality becomes a circus of the unreal, marked by people with depression and schizophrenia. So the eyes of the heart can no longer see as they were intended to see in our world. My very first pastorate after leaving Truett was in Bellingham, Washington. I don't know how many of you know where Bellingham, Washington was. It's 80 miles north of Seattle, 
40 miles south of Vancouver, British Columbia, and I went there so I could pastor and study uh, at Regent College. It's located approximately 20 miles north of Marysville, Washington. I know Marysville Pilchuck. I didn't know Jalen Freiburg, obviously. But what has happened in our culture where a young man will walk into a school having been part of the homecoming royalty of the week before and murder people and take his own life? The eyes of his heart have been blinded, led astray in our world. Friends, the enlightening agent for this inability to see is very simple, though. It's the gospel. The old hymn gets it right. There is power in the blood, wonder-working power. There is. The gospel, my friends, received in love under the power of the Holy Spirit is our world changer. It's our world changer. In a post-Christian, post-modern, post-denominational, post-secular, post-toasties world, the power of the Holy Spirit-fueled good news of God's love is undeniable, and I would even say this, it's irresistible. The pure gospel of God's love under the power of the Spirit is irresistible. Friends, we are apostles to a generation that thrives on experience. I know that. I now live at 5,100 feet above sea level. I climb mountains. I go on hikes. If you're a Facebook friend, you, I, I post this hike almost every time I make it of Drinking Horse Mountain. It's gorgeous. I live 20 minutes from incredible skiing in any direction, snow skiing. I live 15 minutes from incredible trout fishing, fly fishing. It's an incredibly beautiful place. Bozeman, Montana is a town of roughly 40,000. The Galton Valley where I live, approximately 80,000 total people live there. Out of that roughly 80,000 people, 6,000 of them at any given time worship anything in terms of religion. And I'm including my Muslim friends. I'm including my Jewish friends and all my Christian brothers and sisters. Do the math, 6,000 out of 80,000. You'll run into more people on Sacagawea Peak on a Sunday morning than you will in worship. They love the activities. They want the experience. And when I ask them, so where do you worship? On Drinking Horse Mountain, on the Gallatin River, whenever I'm outside, whenever I'm on the slopes. That's where I find and encounter God. They thrive on that experience. They thrive on nature. But friends, whether they know it or not, they have an intense desire to experience God. I believe that. You believe that, or you wouldn't be here today. They crave a faith that tangibly makes a difference in our world. If it doesn't tangibly make a difference, then they're not going to buy in. And friends, they have no room, no room whatsoever for dogma or doctrine without some kind of transformative power. It has to be life-changing or they have no room for it. So friends, my ministry colleagues today, I know that you have the eyes of the heart.
But I think we need to change the glasses through which we are looking at in order to share this good news with our world. As apostles of the good news, you and I live on the boundary between two ages. In a sense, the modern and the postmodern. We're kind of stuck there, really living in neither, but living in both. To see with enlightened eyes, we're going to have to change our glasses prescription. And you really know that deep inside. The worship wars, the emerging church, the doctrinal conflicts have pointed this out to all of us. So today I want to leave you with some ideas. Not commands, not directions, but some ideas. Look at it this way, some new glasses through which to view our task as apostles to our culture. First, this. The church is a movement. The church is a movement. The ecclesias, the called out ones, us, we are more than mission. We are more than doctrine or fellowship. You see, all these things together make us a powerful movement. We are a tidal wave of God's non judgmental love in this world. Is that persuasive? It should be, because that's what we are. Our buildings are resupply centers for this movement, not Quonset huts for the holy. You see, how we understand ourselves is everything. And we need to rethink that a little bit. The church, my friends, isn't simply missional. We are a movement in this world. Are we fixated on putting posteriors in the pews? Or are we actually concerned that the love of Jesus find its ways into the hearts of men and women? There's nothing like a tidal wave of love, the love of God, to see that happen. Second, this movement is fueled by an incredible theocentric mix. We are a cross-redeemed, resurrection-oriented, spirit-inspired, love-informed, and Christ-directed activity in our world. Discipleship in a brave new world must reorient itself for this movement by imbibing deeply at the well of Christ's complete life and promise. No room for hypocrites in a brave new world. No room for hypocrites in a movement. I am bamboozled by the whole ISIS problem today. But the reality is, is everybody involved in that horrific movement has bought in completely and totally. Christians, is it about time that we bought into our movement completely and totally? And then finally, I want you to know this, because this kind of ran my ministry for a while, but I've come to realize this important fact. Outcomes are not our problem. Outcomes are not our problem. We have become so fixated on numbers published in the Baptist Standard. How many baptisms have you had? What is the amount in your budget? But friends, outcomes are not our problems. We need to be focusing not on numbers, but on the mission, on the movement itself, 
instead of counting salvations, we need to be looking at persons and the love that God has for them. When did we ever hear Jesus worry about numbers or outcomes? Jesus, how are we going to pay the temple tax? Go catch a fish, pull the quarter out of its mouth, dump it in the plate. Really? You can't worry about outcomes. Friends, we are so fixated on creating results that we lose the message. Friends, love people unconditionally and absolutely as Jesus loved people. People, persons, share his message of unconditional love and redemption with everyone you meet. Love the unlovable. Feed and bring healing to those who definitely need the touch of Christ. And then watch what happens. Watch what happens as the eyes of their heart are enlightened by the incredible gospel of grace and the love that you just poured into their lives like a tidal wave. Last Sunday was my last Sunday as pastor of First Baptist Church of Bozeman, Montana. The Yellowstone Theological Institute, which we had started kind of out of our basement, had grown to the level that it needed more management and skill, and they asked me to become a part of it. But this last summer in Bozeman, and i got to tell you, Bozeman is great in the summer, 75 to 80 degrees, 50% humidity or less, gorgeous, gorgeous sunshine. We made a decision at First Baptist Bozeman to do something way out of character. And we inaugurated the summer of 2014 as the Summer of Love. And we adopted several families in our community, all of them single moms with children, working three or four jobs to try and make all of their ends meet. We adopted them. We had met them in restaurants as they served us or in whatever blue-collar job they were doing, working on Sundays. They didn't have to be believers And we just said to them, we would like to love you. Can we help you? Nothing required. And this summer, we rebuilt four homes, repainted all of them, fed them, asked one thing. Can we pray for you before we leave? Just pray for you. All four of those families... All four of them are participating now in the body life of the church. We didn't say you have to come. We didn't say you'll, we'll paint your house, but you've got to come to Sunday school. We said we love you. This is our gift to you. That was it. Unconditional love opens the eyes of the heart to see the hope, the grace, the love, and the power of God. I want to charge all of you today, wherever you go in your ministries, to take that attitude which was within Christ Jesus. Stop worrying about numbers. Stop worrying about budgets. But let God be God and watch what happens.
Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity to worship in this place. And Lord, we ask today that you would open all of our eyes to see the truth of walking in Christ in our world today and the kind of power and love that it wields. Bless my brothers and sisters in this place as they go. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.